Our scripture reading today is from Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, North Cross. Good morning, we just um, celebrated the Incarnation, so um, I thought it'd be a good time to go back and try to think about what the Incarnation really is. When God um, became man, descended to the earth in order to raise the earth uh, back up. Um, this is mind-blowing. The whole Incarnation is mind-blowing. Uh, my grandson, Johnny O, I think he was about five or six years old, and he was learning um, how to count, and he was learning how high he could count. And he um, um, asked his parents, as Elizabeth Pocho, what's the highest number there is? And they said, well, what's the highest number you can think of? And he said, a million. And they said, well, you can add one to that. He went, okay, well, then the highest one's a million and one. And they said, well, you can add one to that. And he was starting to catch on. And he, he, you could see it happen in his brain where you could always add one more to whatever there is. Then it just got bigger until infinity. And you saw infinity pass through this little boy's brain. Boom. And that's sort of what we're trying to talk about here. Something uh, impossible, something that we've not uh, really can grasp has happened, this mystery. I used to think the mystery was really about the size thing. It was a size problem. God was so big, how could he enter into our world, our solar system, and much less into a, to an infant? It was a size problem. But there's another problem that we encounter when we think about the incarnation, and it isn't a size problem, it's a motive problem. Not how God could do it, but why? This is so mind, this is what is so mind-blowingly interesting about the incarnation. And this passage addresses the question by telling us about the core theme of reality, the why God did what he did. It shows us the mind of Christ. So that's pretty um, large attempt today to talk about what is the mind of Christ, but the incarnation shows us. Why does he do the things he do, does? So the title of the sermon is Down is Up. Can't get more intuitive than that, can you? Down is Up. And Down is Up is the mind of Christ. It's the core 
process or the core theme of reality. It's the secret of life, if you will. If you remember the movie, The Poseidon Adventure, there was a couple of different versions of the Poseidon Adventure. And the Poseidon is a big ocean liner. And it's out in the ocean and um, and midway through its cruise. And a large rogue wave comes along and capsizes the, the Poseidon. And in the scene, uh, there's a party going on in the main um, banquet hall of the ship. And so people are rolling. There's the ship rolls. Everything's falling down. They're uh, hanging from tables, which are now on the ceiling. And people are falling down. The ceiling is now the floor as the ship is capsized. But the doors are holding, and the water's out. It's leaking through a little bit but it's out and the captain's in there and he urges everyone to stay put. Help help will be on the way and we'll be rescued right here. But there's a small group of people, I think five or six people, that don't, don't buy that and they think that the best way to get rescued is to get where the hull is the thinnest. And the hull is the thinnest I remembered it as the stern, but the, I looked it up on Wikipedia. It said it was the bow. I'm not sure which it is. but So they decided to make their way down the ship, which was now up. You get that? So they're trying to climb staircases backwards and go through all these fires and flooded compartments. And they finally reached the hull, uh, where they start tapping on the hull. And they hear some taps back, and then they're rescued because, did I spoil the movie? It's 2006. Okay, I hope you. Uh, the hull is the thinnest, and that's where the rescuers try to get through. So in the Poseidon adventure, contrary to your intuition, uh, you go down in the ship to get up. And that's the theme of reality. It's the theme of the incarnation. It's the theme of a lot of things in the New Testament. So here's how I'm going to do the story of the sermon. Uh, so you're going to hang on for this. I'm going to read a Christmas story that I wrote about me as a little boy, and I'm trying to go up to be up. I'm trying to ascend by being bigger than myself or taking on a role bigger than myself. And we'll, we'll, work, we'll flip back to the story where we have Christ doing the opposite. He's going down in order to be exalted, going down in order to raise the earth. So st- story is me going up, trying to go up and finding out that that's the wrong way. And, and, this, and the passage where Christ is coming down to raise the earth up. So this is a play, this is a a story about me when I was 10 years old. I've performed in many, many Christmas plays, but my most brilliant role came at the tender age of 10 when I played the angel Gabriel. That's Mr. Archangel Gabriel to you. The choice came down to me or Jimmy Sizemore. However, due to my superior talent, and the fact that my Aunt Rachel made the costume, I got the part and Jimmy played a shepherd. Yes, Gabriel was my most brilliant role. I mean this quite literally. Gabriel lit up the stage. My costume, a pleated starch white sheet, was bright, trimmed in reflective silver. My halo was silver tinsel and my wings were wrapped in silver foil. When the spotlight hit me, and it hit me in all my scenes, 
I practically shone roundabout. I was brilliant, and I liked it. Enough of itchy sheep costumes, enough of cheaply cologne, earth-toned bathrobes belonging to someone else's father, enough of lumbering about on earth on dull, hairy legs. Those roles were so horizontal, so vermin, so pedestrian. But Gabriel had wings, so vertical, so non-mortal. Gabriel was anything but biological. Can you even picture an angel burping or scratching? Gabriel was not dull and ordinary. He was light. And that's not all. I had soaring lines. Behold, I liked saying behold. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Mrs. Jordan on the organ would bring up a nice crescendo when I said great joy. I imagine the audience gazing at me when the spotlight hit me, suddenly appearing, standing on a stepladder, which no one could see on account of the black cloth draped over it. Everyone would assume I was flying. Would they be able to restrain a certain flutter of astonishment, a throat catch of all? I think not. But that wasn't all. I knew enough Bible to know that people are often afraid of angels. Mrs. Tishel even instructed the shepherds, when the light shines on Gabriel, shield your face and quake. I picture Jimmy Sizemore sore afraid and quaking. That was me, hovering, shimmering, quake-inducing. Boy, was this going to be good. Put the, uh, if you have the um, outline of the sermon, flash it up there now. So the sermon outline um, is be interested in what Christ is interested in, what interested Christ, and then down is up, and that is in your best interest. So if you heard me, my little story there, what interested young Roger? What was he thinking about? He was thinking about being in the spotlight. He was thinking about showing up Jimmy Sizemore. He was thinking about being big and bright and loved and applauded. That's what he was thinking about. But what interest is what interests Christ? In verses one and two, Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind. What he's saying is, if you get anything out of your life with Christ, if you're relationship with Christ brings you some kind of comfort or joy, then be of the same mind as each other, but also be of the same mind as Christ. Verse 2, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then verse 4, we're going to see this a couple of times today. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Do, don't live from selfish ambition or conceit. If you think about um, what motivates your behavior, I think you'll see that a lot of times fear motivates your behavior. The reason that you um, don't confront someone is often about fear. It's not about their best interest. It's about you avoiding a conflict. Now, others of you in here, um, when there's a conflict, um, it feels bad to avoid it or not have it resolved, so you push in 
for that reason. And that also can be a, a selfish reason as well. And Paul is saying, don't live that way, live the other way. Now, the angel Gabriel wasn't God. I wasn't aspiring to be God in the play, but I wanted to be high and unreachable, powerful, quake-inducing, a Marvel hero of sorts. This wanting to, to be something you're not in order to attain uh, light and love and power is a unique human vice. You see this in the fall. When Adam and Eve were tempted, the serpent tempted Eve with, um, God knows of it, when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. That was the unique temptation, and that's what human beings have been doing ever since. But it's uniquely a God's virtue to come down, to get under, to raise up. Up is not the way up. Down is the way up. God is showing us in his redemption. He descends, showing us the way. Part two of the story. On the night of the play, I arrived early. Backstage was all moms and kids, costumes and safety pins. Mrs. Tischel made me sit over to the side to protect my wings from getting bent up and all the bustle. Jimmy and the other shepherds kept slapping at them as they walked by. I decided I'd shine a little extra glory around them later on. But mostly I sat there thinking about my big final scene. There was a loud murmuring in the sanctuary as the adults arranged themselves in pews. The lights went down and Mrs. Tischel began narrating. The play unfolded. On cue, I visited Mary, then accompanied by an entourage of singing angels assembled in a host-like fashion. I delivered the announcement to the shepherds. However, in my opinion, they didn't quake very convincingly. I shone well, but was saving my most intense luminosity for the final scene when the whole cast assembled half circle around the manger. I was to appear last, capping off the scene atop the aforementioned stepladder, positioned center stage directly behind Mary and Joseph. The light would hit me, the music would swell, I'd raise my arms, and the whole cast and audience would sing the first verse of Silent Night. Then all the lights would dim except for the spotlight on me and the Holy Family for dramatic effect. Then a slow fade, leaving, leaving the audience with the impression of heaven blessing earth, and of course, a seared-in mental image of me, the hovering, shimmering, quake-inducing being. So again, what was the young Roger interested in? I was interested in the spotlight. I was interested in being powerful. Now, that's not all bad. We all want to be we all want to be significant. We all want to matter. We all want to be loved. But the way I was doing it was the opposite of the way Christ does it. I was grasping it. He was letting go of it. So point two in the outline. What interested Christ? Verses five through eight. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross. So what was the mind of Christ? Well, the mind of Christ was not on 
his power. It wasn't on his glory. It wasn't on grasping that. In verses uh, uh, 7 through 8, you see a cascading uh, descent uh, by Christ. He gave up. He didn't grasp his power. He took the form of a servant, but not only did he take the form of a servant, but he humbled himself to the point of death. That's what kind of sacrifice he was making. And not just any death, but a cross death, a most brutal form of death, a cascading descent that Christ made to rescue the world. That was what was important to him. That was what was his interest, and that's what he did. In Matthew 20, the disciples kind of have the same problem. As you remember, they're walking along on a journey, and they're discussing among themselves who is going to be the greatest among them. And Jesus overhears them, and he called them to him, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. This idea is throughout Scripture. This idea that, that God and God in Christ descends to raise up. This is the theme of reality. If you want to know how to live in life, if you want to know how to be exalted or honored by God, if you want to know how to live, this is the theme. But we never quite rid ourselves of wanting power or grasping it or grasping at it. We want to be the center, the apex, the point, and we want to do it in our own strength, in our own ways. We want to become something we're not, looking to put others down so that we'll be up we want to be empowered, untouchable. But it doesn't work out so well. We can't attain what we want. Like Adam and Eve, we find that our eyes are open, but not to power. We find that we're fallen. It's, um, it's indicative that when Adam and Eve uh, tried to go up to be God, that's what we call the fall. They wanted to be more than themselves and they ended up being less than themselves. If you want to rise, then you must descend. Let me give you an application of this or a, an illustration of this. Many of you know I'm a counselor, do a lot of marriage counseling, and I had um, maybe about five or six years ago, I'd had a couple that um, I'd seen for two or three sessions, I suppose, and they had a lot of conflict. They were very very mature Christians, at least individually, and they had um, they were in their, I guess, late 50s, early 60s, their kids were grown. Um, they'd, they'd served in a lot of missions. They were, they were good people. Um, but they sometimes got into conflicts with one another. And they came in this one time and they told me about what they called the, uh, the carrot incident. Okay, so, he was home more often because he was semi-retired, and they were fixing a meal, meal in their kitchen, and uh, his job was to chop the carrots. And sometime during the 
chopping. She looked over and said, uh, there's a better way to do that. What he heard was, you're doing it wrong. So he didn't say anything, and he kept doing it the way he was doing it. So she said again, maybe with a little more tone to it, maybe, you're doing it wrong, or there's a better way to do that. I think the issue was she wanted a slant cut, and he was doing 90 degrees. So it's a big issue. I mean, you can see, um, I deal with some pretty important things. <laughs> so he gets quiet and um, um, says something like, um, I know how to chop carrots. Then she gets quiet and cold, and she says, I'm just trying to tell you that I, I know how to chop carrots. And it escalated uh, until they both left the kitchen, and I guess the carrots just lay there, the little round disc of carrots. And they came in, and they were sheepish about talking about this, but they felt like it was indicative of how stubborn the other person was. And I congratulated them that they were both right, that this was indicative. And they had felt this before about other issues. Uh, she felt like he wouldn't listen to feedback, and he felt like he was getting criticized. You know the, you know the, the deal. Um, slant or disc. Now, you remember that verse that I pointed out in the verse? Look not only to your interest, but look at the interest of others. So both of these folks had a chance to descend instead of ascend. What they wanted to do was they wanted to get one up on the other person. They wanted to explain why their cutting method was better or more efficient or made more sense with cooking or why that they knew what they were doing and didn't need to be criticized. They wanted to, they wanted to ascend. That's how, they, that's how you do arguments, right? You top the other person. But if they had stopped and focused in on the mind of Christ, um, maybe something different could have happened. For example, let's just say the, the husband, if he had stopped and he had thought, okay, I think the way I'm doing it's perfectly fine. In fact, I know it's perfectly fine, but I wonder what she's talking about. Doesn't sound hard to do, does it? It's amazingly hard to do. Uh, he had already felt pinged with the criticism, and so looking out for her interest was a little bit like me coming up and poking you in the eye and expecting you to go, oh, geez, Roger, something going on for you today? Um, he was hurt, so he, but if he had stopped and he looked for her own and her, her interest, he might have thought, well, I wonder why she wants them cut the other way. She's a reasonably intelligent person. Maybe there's a reason. Now, maybe her reason was because her granddaughter and her, well, her granddaughter was coming over for dinner and her granddaughter and her had a little joke about cutting slanted potato, uh, carrots because that's the way the granddaughter liked them. Maybe that's what it was. Or maybe her mother always did it that way, and she always thought of her mother when she made this particular dish and wanted slanted carrots because of her mother. Or maybe she was a little bit threatened because he was in the kitchen and she just wanted something to be in control of. Who knows? But he was not thinking about her interest. He was thinking about his own. Now, if he thinks about his only his own interest, things are going to go bad 
even if he wins the argument. Okay? So if he, if he um, uh, overtops her with his explanation and she says, fine, cut him in disc then, um, he wins, but you don't really win. Uh, you eat that soup in silence. Um, he's, he's worried about the way that he um, spoke to her, so he's feeling a little guilty, or he's feeling like she won't accept anything. He doesn't really win. If he loses the argument, he doesn't really win there either, right? Because he's thinking about the next time he's going he's gonna to have a suggestion and he's going to top her. So even if you win, you lose, and if you lose, you lose, if you're thinking only about your own interest. But if you're thinking about the other interest, <clears throat> then maybe he might find out, oh, our granddaughter likes them that way. Cool. We'll cut them slanted. And they make a joke out of it. Or he finds out that um, <clears throat> her mother did it that way. And he says, makes you think about your mom, huh? And then they have this little tender moment over the slanted <laughs> carrot. Or maybe she starts talking and she it comes out that she just wants to control something because she feels kind of threatened by him being in there. Uh, maybe she'll admit it, maybe she won't, but at least there'll be the truth. And he's treated her well in the process. <clears throat> See where I'm going with that? Down is the way to go up. It's in the principles of relationship. It's in the principles of the incarnation. It's in, sewn into the principles of the world. When you're looking only out for your interests, you don't go up, you go down, or at best, you go sideways. Jesus told his disciples that <clears throat> down was up many times throughout his life. Here's how he said it in John 12. The hour has come, Jesus says, for the man, Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. When the seed goes down, it comes back up, multiplied. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Now get this. If anyone serves me by descending, by losing his life, the Father will honor him. Um, when you go down, you get raised up. Part three of the story. As the moment, the big moment, Approached, I began to feel warm. My wings were heavy and slouching. I itched. I was thinking about climbing that ladder with my floor-length white gown. I hadn't practiced it. I feared I would step on my own hem and strip myself, revealing my plain T-shirt and jeans. All of a sudden, I wasn't feeling glorious verticality. I was feeling gravity. The ladder was wobbly because one leg was on an extension cord. For fear of falling, I stopped running short of the top. The spotlight hit me square in the face, and instead of shining brilliantly, I squinted awkwardly. I couldn't see the audience response. I listened, but couldn't tell if I heard astonished gasp or snickers. Forced to lower my eyes, I saw the cast below me. I remembered the way raised my arms, but being off balance only got them halfway up. 
the music rose and we began to sing. I thought I'd feel like I was the center of things, but I didn't. I felt decidedly off-center, distant from the personified sheep and cow, the magi, Mary and Joseph. Even Jimmy and the shepherds felt far away. The light that I had so coveted was shining on them. In fact, the whole moment was shining on them. Christmas wasn't for the angels, I realized. It was for them, those smelly, itchy, pedestrian, mouth-breathing humans. The point of the glad tidings I could see now was that God comes to human, the Christ child. God's gift couldn't descend any closer. The baby was swallowed in the same biological, breath-drawing, nervous systematized form as everyone else in that little church. I was Gabriel, mighty Gabriel, but I found myself on the outside longing to look into this, this thing that wasn't for me. The incarnation, it turns out, is for the carnate. I suddenly had the urge to get down off my high ladder. I didn't want so much to shine, but to be shown upon. I didn't want to be the one saying, behold, I wanted to be the one beholding. I didn't want to bear good tidings. I wanted to hear them. Standing on that high ladder, I felt homesick for my humanity. Verse 9 of our passage. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Because of Jesus' descent, God exalts him. When we try to rise up, we miss the gospel. It doesn't work. We find that the effort to ascend results in a fall. Trying to escape our need results in escaping the grace made for our need. Trying to supersede, I had it all backwards. We've had it all backwards. Escaping our humanity isn't our salvation. Embracing our humanity is our salvation. Embracing everything with our smelly, faulty, broken humanity is the way. Jesus didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. You don't see the point of Christmas or the incarnation or the gospel from above. You see it from below. You see it from, from below because it makes you look up. And you see God in Christ descending straight for you. You are lost, and he is finding you. He descends in order to raise you up, back up to your real, true self. I don't know if you have that uh, C.S. Lewis quote. Do you have it on there? Okay, I'll just read it. It's in your um, um, bulletins, too. This is a a quote by C.S. Lewis. Um, uh, I think you'll see how it relates. It's, It's a little bit long, but hang on. Your real, new self will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come when you're looking for him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters. Even in social life, you'll never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you're making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original, whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence about how often it's been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. 
The principle, the mind of Christ, runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself. And you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. I love this sentence. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Everything else thrown in. Part four of the story. It's been many years since I climbed off that wobbly ladder, but since then I've climbed up on many others. It seems I'm always looking for something to prop up the illusion of hovering, of shimmering, of not being afraid. I'm always dressing up in some kind of costume, hoping to cover my need. But every lavender wobbles, every costume, no matter how bright, is just a cover-up. Eventually, I trip on the hem and expose who I really am, an earth-toned, hairy-legged pedestrian. Yes, I am earth-toned, hairy-legged pedestrian who has this curious longing to be filled with light and covered with love. Odd, I started off thinking that the way to attain light and love was to escape the human condition, and now I'm seeing that the human place is exactly where I want to be, because human is where God goes. That's the point of the incarnation. How had I missed that? So if I want to be filled with light and love, and oh, how I do, I must climb off my high ladder, take off my costume, and be found a human, which is included. So I ask you today, where are the roles where you try to transcend yourself, where you try to find light and love by ascending, by getting on top, rather than by descending? Where are the costumes and the fig leaves that you're hiding behind. Instead, be found a human. Admit your need. Admit your longing. And secondly, uh, take that uh, descent and look out for not only your own needs, but the needs of others, and you'll find light and love in doing so. So here's the application question, and I'd like for you to do the application right now, because I don't trust you to do it later. is answer this question internally. And I'd like for you to like, actually mentally say it, if you, if you would, please. Do you wish to rise into light and love? If you do, then answer this question. How might you descend today? What's a practical way you can descend today? I'm watching you. I can tell if you're thinking or not. If you thought of that application, thank you, number one. And secondly, you are attempting to integrate into the mind of Christ by descending like he did. This is how God does things. It's a way he arranges reality to function. This is the mind of Christ from the beginning. 
At creation, God descended, hovered over the waters to raise the world to life. At the creation of Adam, God descended, breathing the breath of life into Adam's nostrils, raising humanity to life. At the incarnation, God descended as a baby in the form of a servant, raising the possibility of redemption. At the cross, God descended in Christ as the sacrificial lamb into death, descended into hell for our sakes, the Apostles' Creed says, to resurrect life. And in the end, Christ will descend once again, this time with a shout, to raise creation and restore the kingdom of God. Amen.